Hello and welcome back to the Grave News Podcast. Ooh, it's been so long. Yep, we are back and today Luke will be discussing the Sutton Who. And before I start, I do apologise for the length of time this has been. It's gone from me not editing, to me not researching, to me being horrifically <laughs> ill and una- unable to speak for two hours. So, yeah. I mean, really. I can't really blame you. I was pretty sick for a little time while you were sick. So it kind of coincided. Right. So to put it into context for how long this has been, because I thought this would be a funny opener. We recorded last time, if I remember rightly, on the same day as the Queen's funeral. Yeah, it may have been. Since then, Charles has tried to be egged. That was a couple of days ago. That was what? interesting. Have you not heard about this? He tried to be egged. Right, basically, he was oh, in York. They, oh, was that when they threw eggs at him at York? Yeah, and somebody yeah. threw eggs at him. And I, I was reading today, they've been banned from carrying eggs in public. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a good sentence. I... <laughs> That is what I aspire to now. That's one of my goals in life. I want to be banned so in public. Also, since then, we had a prime minister that lasted 40 days and will still claim one, I think it's like 150 grand a year, isn't it, you get for being prime minister? Wow. Good old Liz. We've got Rishi. This is good. I haven't told you about this yet. This is going to be a little surprise. Have you looked at our um, figures of like listens and where we get listened to from? No. Have you seen any of this? Right. I was, it was a little while ago now, but I was just looking through for fun. 28th of September, how many downloads do you reckon we had in one day? I don't know, one. And it was your 48. Dad. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? Who? Now, I, I I had to look into this. Right, so what What have we got? What stats have we got here? Performance. Is that? Um... I think it's women in antiquity. Oh, nice one. Um, so in the first seven days, our best performing one was actually misgendered, misgendered graves with five, with five downloads after four days. In the first thirty days, day nineteen for women in antiquity went up to fifty downloads, and then fifty-two a couple of days later. How on earth? I, I, th- I thought it was mental. Right, what's the most abstract country that? Do you reckon we've got? I I genuinely didn't think we were getting anything outside of southern England. Um, Nor did I. However, abstract we're, countries. We're worldwide. Ah, oh, daily into Europe. What are we? Okay, abstract countries. I don't know. Poland, man. <laughs> right. We have one listener in Uganda. <gasps> wow. There's... Shout out to you. <laughs> There's one in Puerto Rico. Nice. We've got two in Costa Rica, one in Honduras, one in Guatemala, four in Mexico. Why? Why There's... are we so popular in the Americas? By We've popular, one in... there's one person in a country. There's one in China, which has somehow managed to break the system. We've got two in South Korea. There's three in Belgium, ten in the UK. And what do you reckon our most popular country is? Or there's a sec- there's a secret other country with more than ten listeners. There's yeah. Is it is it the US because it's massive? It, yeah, it is. So you know how I said there were forty eight listens in one day. Yeah. The US has forty seven downloads, so I'm assuming it's that episode. So somebody in the US went, "Oh, this is really good as an educational resource." Ooh. 
I'm, I'm assuming. That'd be fun. So yeah, somebody in America has just listened to us and gone, damn, this is some great evidence. Nice. That is exciting. Mother and that's your that's your it. Women in Antiquity episode, is it? It is, yeah. Ooh, okay. the, the Greeks and mm-hmm. Egyptians, because that's what the focus was. But speaking of Egypt, actually, I'm so good at segues. <laughs> I went to an exhibition. Oh, tell us now, about it, yeah. October half time, I went up to London, the British Museum, and I went to the Hieroglyph Exhibition. Ooh. You have no idea how, how much fun I had. Oh, it was Did so you read good. With no translations, I, you just went, oh, I can read this. No, because I haven't revised it yet. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it was honestly such a good exhibition. It was really, really interesting. Because it, it's 200 years since um, Champion deciphered it. So they had the Rosetta Stone in there. They had a load of Arab evidence in there. And you see the progression. For me personally, when I first went there, you kind of you focus on the um, almost... European, like the, the European sense of it, you've got Champion, you've got Young, most of them are competing. Um, but then you kind of see there's an Arab interest from very early on, there's a Roman interest, which is where everybody used to go. And it's just, I don't know, it's a, I, it's, it was a lot, it was a much bigger progression than I think a lot of people probably gave it credit for. That's mm. the kind of the impression I got anyway. So yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Thoroughly recommend it. Yeah, amazing. So that was at the British Museum. It was. Very nice. Now, it, it was funny actually. L- little side note: <laughs> you would you'd think, right? Where would the exhibitions be held in the British Museum? Big hall, something. I would have assumed the big centre bit. Yeah, the big centre bit of the massive staircase. No, because that's that's the empty milling around bit that you don't you don't do anything in. I didn't know it was empty anymore because I I had to Google this. I think it's either 2013 or 2017. Up until then, they held exhibitions there. Obviously, it was a library before that. So I, I, I walked up there, didn't find it, then walked somewhere else. And I went to the right staircase and I was like, right, I'll be at the top of these stairs. Go up the stairs, it's not there. Come back down, I realised there's an A5 sign going, exhibition in here. And I was like, right, cheers, lads. So we got there in the end, but yeah, honestly, really do recommend it if you if you can drag yourself up there, or if anybody else wants to go, do. Definitely Might be a do. bit of a hard trek from Uganda to get to the British Museum. Yeah, maybe. However, to our Tennessee the listeners. <laughs> yeah, off you go, people. Off you go. Um, what 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 else have we got before we jump in? Oh, are you are we revealing my excellent news? about this podcast actually being effective for a reason. So we made this, as mentioned in the introduction, partly as something to discuss in a Cambridge interview and as practice for that kind of critical analysis. And I have received my call to interview from Pembroke College. (laughs) We are still waiting on fits, but it appears that everyone's waiting on fits. So we have ultimate confidence in Luke. Even Kings is faster than Fitz. Like, I would have thought they'd be they're the ones that take take ages, but apparently not. Is it literally just Fitz at this point? I don't know. I don't like. I, I don't. I don't know enough people applying to Cambridge. Apparently. I, I know but, literally um... you and then someone friend. <laughs> <laughs> so God, yeah. We hope. We pray. Actually, I 
I've got a couple of people I can probably ask. I probably should because if, if I, as long as I'm not the only one waiting for like ten days, then I'm fine. It's still very early days in November. You, you will get no, it. No, true, true. It will be fine. You will get it. True, true. Well, my only worry is, is like the um, admissions assessments on like the twenty third to the 29th. Mm. So I've got to get it before then. Mm. But, but yeah, you will get. It. You know, they send out. Pembroke is sending out the information for the assessment on the eighteenth. So. So it should yeah, be before. Yeah, I assume you'd get it. Like, okay. it'll be fine. Ultimately. Right. Cool. Um, there else you want to catch up on before we jump in? I mean, England, England released their World Cup no score. No one cares. So, no one cares. Yeah. Moving on. Right, it's thank not you. Fine. Not football podcast. I will. Right, okay. Of the podcast. Right, point taken. <laughs> point taken. <laughs> Had to deal with this for two hours. Okay, <laughs> because my history teacher, the one who didn't believe that I could get an interview for Cambridge, um, has been talking about it non-stop. He was talking about it yesterday as a hypothetical, and he was talking about it today as a reality, and it's made me want to die. So, moving on to something that I actually care about, talk about the Sutton Who. <laughs> anyway, so to move on from my love and passion and obviously Jane's yeah. burden in no. life, the Sutton Who. No, I'm not talking about the Sutton Who, talking about football, but to move on to the Sutton Who. When I was first researching this, what's the first thing that comes to your mind the helmet media the helmet the helmet the yeah helmet. I, I i had the similar thing i was thinking the boat mm, yeah now i didn't i didn't realize until i started researching this that this was a settlement that was inhabited for a very long time mm. i honestly just thought of the ship and like in that burial mound exclusively i know it's a bit like um i know stonehenge has got more than one but for some reason i thought it was just a ship mm. It's not. Um, so, actually, at Sutton Hoo, you've got two early medieval Anglo-Saxon burial sites. Um, you've got a smaller ship. Uh, you've got a smaller ship, you've got a larger ship. And then, they, and then there's loads of like other little burials within the same area. Hmm. Which, for some reason, like I said, for some reason, I don't know if it's just because it's publicised more, I didn't think anything else was there. Mm. Yeah, because all you think about is that one famous grave in the treasure trove. You don't really consider yeah. it as part of like an actual culture. You just think, oh yeah, this is a one-off example of something completely alienated from everything else. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. When I was first researching it, I just don't think it kind of gets put into the context it probably should be. Kind of as a brief overview, it was I think it was eight. 1939 they found the the massive mm. ship and that kind of shot shone a light onto a period that we lack written evidence for mm. so it's very hard to interpret and trying to gain information about it and it was it was a discovery that completely rewrote ideas about anglo-saxons in the uk especially mm. uh, that ended up being much more developed than we previously thought now if you want an illustration of this i know it's a drama Oh, it's a very good drama. Go watch The Dig on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not, but everyone recommends it to me all the time. Honestly, do. It's really, really good. Really, really insightful. And it touches on a lot of the stuff that we'll probably talk about today, especially with, I don't know if you've heard about this, but the issues surrounding the guy that found it 
and then what all the museums did mm. afterwards. Because it's all it's all elitism, isn't it? It's a very similar thing. Yeah, a little bit. I read a few articles yeah, about it same. quite recently, coincidentally, because I was looking at going to see that film about um, digging up Richard III, and they're talking about basically oh, yeah. just taking off the dig, talking about how the little man archaeologist, or woman in this case, is sort of bulldozed over by the greater societies. What? Can I ask what happened with Richard III? Because I've, I've heard about this. Was it a journalist or something that was looking into it? Yeah, she... Well, according to the film, uh, she just kind of got this really... Which people are suing about. Feeling, yeah. For the record. Yeah, because it paints the university in a really, really bad light. But basically, right, she okay. got this really strong feeling about this car park. And there was an R drawn on the ground for like some parking reasons and she just had this psychic feeling that it marked richard the third um now now what i do know is that r or i think he was three bays down yeah from the reserves <laughs> which is mental so you know in many ways it was a fun and psychic situation but who who really knows I think we're gonna to have to do an episode about that mm. at some point because that entire thing there's there's such a good TED talk on it, done by one of the people that was that was on it from Leicester. I don't know if you've seen it or if I'll, or if I've sent it to you. Oh, I think that sounds really good. Um, it was such a good TED talk. Um, I don't I don't remember the name of the lady that was giving it and just pain in the ass, but. Yeah, if anybody gets a chance, go watch it. Really, really enjoyable. And a, actually quite a funny lecture as well. She's a very, really, really good presenter. Right. Yeah, she was like an amateur historian who had these sort of psychic about this car park. And then they yeah. did find him. And according to the film, the university were like really anti to it and really, really rude to her. But I think that's just like dramatisation. And that is basically what they're suing about. Because they're like, you've just massively okay, slagged okay. us off and made us look evil. And we're not really yeah. proud of that. So a bit more about Sun who uh, the 60s and the 80s came along and they did some more excavations. As well as finding other individual burials, they actually found another burial man about 500 metres mm. up, um, destroyed by agricultural activity. But those mounds obviously were signs of probably more high status burials within, within the same area and just a little history on kind of what was there because this this is the bit that really intrigued me because i like i said literally thought this burial site for this one obviously very powerful mono mm. Turn, turns out it wasn't mm. there was a possible Neolith neolithic settlement there mm. um that you see like you see like small pits with like earthware flint that sort of stuff you've then got a bronze age settlement there developed for agriculture and that that had roundhouses and you kind of see the you kind of see the mark the markings in the ground where they've dug dug ditches I, I don't, i've seen this before i don't remember where it was i think it was on a geology field trip in all honesty mm. um but they dig ditches to mark the barriers of the mm. land yeah um so that those are kind of across the area wow so it was used for for a long time before burial happened yeah before yeah but before the burial because it was, must have been what 584 580 i think it was hmm. so we know what it was like in the neolithic era at the time of 
the famous burials? Do we know what the town was like yeah. at that point? What their sort of trade was, etc. Um, well, after after Neolithic, you had that Bronze Age one. You then had an Iron Age one, mm. um, which apparently was unaffected by Roman arrival, which is the interesting bit because it kind of it that continued through. Now, obviously, the Romans left, the Anglo Saxons came along, and they settled there. And they kind of divided the area to include East Anglia. Mm. Um, now, the river next to it, which isn't that far from the actual burial site, I think, I think I'll touch on it later, but the mound itself, the large mound itself would have been very, very visible from that river. Mm. But that would have been a really busy trade route because obviously you've got the North Sea literally right next to it. So anybody from Scandinavia or Northern Europe is going to be coming through that. So that entire transportation networks are running right next to this. And you had settlements dotted the whole way along that river. Mm. So chances are you would have had people living fairly nearby to this, even if that area was cordoned mm. off most likely to be a cemetery. The interesting thing about that is you see, you see that shift. They think because of over farming of the area, but you see a shift from kind of an agricultural focus to having that trade route, utilizing that trade route. I think there's a town only seven miles or so up, up the road mm. but you see it become an almost trade hub rather than agricultural but um I, I don't know just when i was looking into it I, I thought that was quite nice in the fact you see that progression and you almost see the change in priorities in the area hmm. do we know what was being traded in particular if the settlement at this time had any specific things that it was I mean, I, i'm not i'm not too sure um i'm trying to think what i imagine it would have been i think food trade was quite common at the time you probably would have had furs and stuff coming in from the north mm. but yeah to be hopefully honest, i'm not too sure i don't want to suddenly jump to conclusions but yeah you talk about the changing priorities about how it's yeah. interesting the changing priorities in the landscape could you put out in more specific terms what those priorities were at each um era yeah, so the kind of Neolithic one, you saw the woodland kind of cleared by agriculturalists. So that was the kind of the beginning of that agricultural focus for the area. The Bronze Age settlement built on that. Hmm. Um, and I think this is when it was first abandoned between kind of 1500 and 1000 BC. Hmm. Um, you had the kind of agricultural farming focus was taken out because there was sandy soil anyway, it became infertile. But you then had kind of cattle and you had sheep in the area. So that that kind of continued. Um, but then during the Roman era, the Romans basically did a bit like what they did to Egypt and just used it as a massive farm, massive farmland. Mm. So then that became over farms that had to be abandoned. And I think it was at that point where it changed once the Romans left it changed to become that trade trade focused area so that would be why it wasn't affected by roman entry because it was already an agricultural civilization yeah i'm assuming so i mean i imagine i don't remember what they're called i did some research into this once but they kind of instilled almost like local kings local kings into the area that basically just took the influence of the people that were already there um 
and just kind of said, well, you you rule the area, but you but you own up to me. So it's basically these people coming in when the Romans came in and kind of still controlling the area. And would these be local people or are these Roman dignitaries? Most likely Roman people that came in. Um, it's the same thing in, I think it's Chichester, obviously that's a massive Roman town, but you had one, I, I really don't remember the name of the name for it. It's really annoying me. Mm. Um, uh, Client Kings, I think that's it. Um, so mm. it, it's basically, the, it's the Roman rulers that come in and so they don't have to have a massive presence here. They then make client kings of all the local leaders that were here anyway, and basically said, "You've got all. Of, you can now have access to all of this Roman stuff. Just make sure you own up to me." So I think with that control, that then came in that, that over farming focus, and I think once the Romans left, it kind of shifted back to becoming more trade focused, despite the dark ages that everybody thinks people entered during the period. So it was also a cemetery. And I think you're going to talk more in detail about the actual burials that sort of mark this cemetery out as being particularly significant for the time period. Yeah, so the the cremations here kind of throughout the periods, those were found alongside grave goods, which that uh, that influence of grave goods kind of shifted out. It was a little bit after the Anglo-Saxons when Christianity became bigger and they kind of shifted their focus more towards like single burials. Hmm. I have feeling we talked about this last episode as well on the influence of Christianity but this is a brilliant yes. example of it where you have kind of the tradition with Anglo-Saxons where you do bury with grave goods and you kind of see the shift of that fading out into just bur- just plain burials hmm. but in those in those early cremations you don't just see humans you also see dogs, there's horses probably most likely sacrificed hmm. um but there's a large variety of burial mounds in there and they probably would have been much larger than they are today simply because farming and stuff just mm. worn them down over time. So what what kind of grave goods did they have in these burials? Some found game pieces, some found cups. There's little bits of cutlery. Um, mound 2, which is the smaller ship that was there, mm. um, that had them all kind of laid out in the boat. Um mm. And that was just on a smaller scale to what the main mound was, which is referred to as Mound One. So that was that was that large ship. So I am um, going to be dragging you back to the gaming pieces in a bit because I I don't know if you know any more details about them, but I really love the. I think we touched on this last time that I really love the concept of gaming pieces as grave goods. Yeah, um, no, yeah, no, we did because of the Viking influence gone. Yeah. Gone, we'll do it now. Because you think you think of the laying your dead out in a ship as quite a Viking thing, and the the gaming pieces are very putting me in mind of Nefertafel, which is one of my favourite archaeological concepts. Do we have any more details about how much influence you think the Vikings may have had on these people? Um, we're not too sure, and you can tell me if you want to do this now, because mm. uh, I was going to do it at the end, but. There, there is a link between these burials here and ones happening during the same period in Sweden. Ooh, well, was this your surprise? This is my surprise. Do you want me to do it now? Oh, I'm very sorry. It's just I love the Vikings. I'll bring them up whenever I can. I, I would love to do it now, if I'm honest. Yeah, cool. We'll, we'll come back to all the detail about all the ships. 
Now, in Sweden, 1881 mm. to 1883, they found 14 graves in the village of Vendel. Um, and these several burials have boats about nine meters long, I think. I th- I, the one found here was oh, how, 27, just to put it in context. Massive. Um, but, yeah, it was huge. Um, but th- these were kind of furnished with swords, shields, helmets. Um, and then in 1928, the, the oh, I apologize for my pronunciation, Volsgaard, burial field, that, that was found. And once again, that had ships, similar artifacts, sacrificed mm-hmm. animals. Um, and that kind of tradition once again ended once Christianity set in. Mm. Um, but you see these ship burials are very much confined to this area in East of Sweden and this one mm-hmm. little area of East Anglia in England. Oh. Um, now, my major surprise for you, Ooh. guess who found these? The ones in Sweden. <gasps> who? Who found them? It was Hamel. <gasps> was it? Yeah. Oh. I, I found this so mental. Like the crossover, it wasn't even intentional. I know, I know, I mentioned Sutton here last week, but that was accidental. Hell yeah, for Hjalma. Well, yes. <gasps> My favourite individual, famously meticulous. We know everything. Everything found is accurate. Famously. Uh, excellent. So, uh, I, I, I such. I was about to say such a small world. I guess it is. It's just ours. Oh, I mean, if you're going to be doing meticulous archaeology in the 1800s of for the Vikings, it's it's going to be Hjalmar. Yeah, you come from the best, you get the best, you get all the best excavations from Hjalmar. Very, very true. That's why we're exceedingly happy. So he's multiple <laughs> graves with these gaming piece grave goods. Was there a significance of? Do we know where these gaming pieces were found? If there were any connections to status um, were they just chucking them in the anglo-saxons had a slightly different culture with it they would just chuck it in with anyone um, the analysis of as for the position i'm not too sure but i know this particular king his name is vidvald i think it i think how do we know now his there's name? very sorry for asking that but how do we know his name um Good question. Bear with. Is that something oh. that's found in the grave, or is it a connection that we've made using archaeology and written history? Now, I'll, this 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 will be stuff I come back to. But the Viking invasions in the ninth century destroyed a lot of the records we have of the Anglo-Saxons. Oh. Yeah. However, it was sixteen sixteen about. I want to say 1616, and he reigned approximately until about 16, no, sorry, not 1616, 616. Okay, I was going to say, like, that's... <laughs> this is a little bit late. A bit late for him. Now, he reigned from about 600 to about 625, they think. Mm. Um, however, this was, a, this was a leader that was mentioned in the 1616 Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is written well after his death. Mm. So he's obviously a very powerful king, very influential, Mm. and left a very big mark on the area, not only in East Anglia, but also in the areas surrounding it. Mm. Like He he was referred to as a Brett Valder, 
B-R-E-T-W-A-D-A, which translates a wide ruler. So whoever, whoever was interested at the time, he had a massive influence over that yeah. over that area, especially kind of eastern eastern England. And to have such a wide rule, you've got to be a pretty good tactician, showing yep. to play with his gaming pieces in the afterlife. Indeed, indeed. Um, just another reference to it while I see it. The grave goods were trying to. Pro- they think from what they found, they're trying to project an image of imperial power. Hmm. Um, that makes sense with the tactics, presumably weapons, to show yes. you've got militaristic power and um, tactical strength. Um, however, while we're, while we're on the topic, I'll just mention it. There's also potential for this to be a sen- uh, cenotaph. Oh, I might yeah. be saying that wrong, which is basically. They think that it was a ship burial, symbolically not a burial for a person. Now this this came up fairly soon, only because the saw, like I said before, the saw is really acidic. So any body that w- was buried there would have basically mm. been wiped away over time. Um, and it's only recently that they found phosphate traces in the soil that backed up the stain that was already there. Mm. So they think there was a human body there. Ah. Um, however, this was a king that was converted to Christianity mm. quite early into his reign. So there is potential for that to be to him to have a Christian burial and the man to be used as a memorial. Mm. However, I would personally disagree with that only because of the sheer amount of grave goods that were there. I don't yeah. think he, I don't think he would have buried that without somebody being in that position. Hmm. It does. Yeah, it doesn't make that much sense to have a memorial, because if you if you're gonna have a memorial, possibly with shit, yeah, and you put some weapons in it. But the most important thing is that it is a mound, and it's the interior is presumably not on display for everyone. So then all these all these precious grave goods that you've put inside. It's basically word of mouth whether they're there or not. And while in spirit, yeah. excellent memorial, but in practice, far more likely to actually have your king in there. Because it just doesn't feel like, especially as a trade-savvy community, it doesn't yeah. seem like the most effective decision to make to bury no, I don't... in an empty tomb. Especially for the quality that they were. I, don't, I can't see it being buried without the king actually also being there and that kind of being his resources for the afterlife. Especially as it is also a separate cemetery, there are other burials similar but on a smaller scale in there. So it doesn't yeah. really make sense for just this one to be empty. Yeah, I mean, they because think... They haven't found any record of his Christian burial being somewhere else? No, not as far as they know. And the interesting thing is the other mound with the smaller ship is thought to be his son that died in a battle. So it would make sense for them all to be buried in this similar area. Yeah. So that's on that kind of note, I do agree with the theory that's come out. Mm. I can't see a body not being there. Yeah. So this this relationship to the Vikings, do we think this this is born of trade? 
it's specifically one area of Sweden and this area of East Anglia. Is it found anywhere else in Europe? Was this a common Viking tradition or just like one certain community's tradition? Not, not from what I've found. It seems very much localised. Um, and there's a very similar selection and arrangement of artefacts between the two areas. You've got the same burial customs. You've got the same possessions a lot of the time. But the Sutton Hoo was just a exceptional quality and a much larger scale version. Mm. But the interesting thing is a lot of the regalia and instruments of power that were in there, so stuff like the swords, stuff like the imagery on the helmet, mm. has direct links to Scandinavia. Ooh. <laughs> so whoever this king was, I know he's a foreign king anyway. I can't say for certain where he's from. Um, oh, but he so he... Honest- he obviously he has a very strong link. The Anglo-Saxon? He was no, some... No, he, he was a foreign king. Ah. I can't say... I can't remember, to be honest, where... Oh, so we know, we know where he's from, then. But we just don't remember at the moment. It would make a lot of sense for him to be from that area of Scandinavia, but if he isn't, that's even more interesting. Well, maybe not. There's a king... Oh, this makes sense. Hmm? He's the king of East Anglia. His father also ruled East Anglia. Hmm. So he might well be local, but I have a feeling he might be a foreign family. The alternative argument for this is that to connect the two areas is there's a tradition uh, in the north where future kings were raised away from home. Ah. And this was quite often with either friends or distinguished relatives. Mm. Um, and he could have acquired the traditions, the contacts, the items, which are very high quality anyway. Mm. That could have been f- made in Sweden where mm. he was growing up before then returning home and ruling when his dad died. Ah, so if he's a foreign family, his family is in this area of Sweden with the boat graves. I'm assuming a similar sort of area, yeah, given the connections between them and whether he's gone there and taken influence from those um, from those graves. Because this is, I think, the thing, the, the thing to remember is this is on such a massive scale compared to everything else mm. in this cemetery. It's mm. so much bigger than anything else. The other ship burial, I think, was only two and a half, three metres. This is 27. I might, I might have that first one wrong, but that is it's, huge. it's absolutely massive. Yeah. There you go. F- five by two meters. The f- the small, smaller ships. So even still, it's what basically six times as long, nearly. Yeah. That that is my. Um, and just kind of touch on like my first ideas when I, when I approached this. Like we've kind of been discussing that connection almost I I don't know what it is, but everybody during that during that period after the Romans left, they kind of assume every, everybody went into the into a dark age. Mm. Um so what of me approaching this, I've got that in mind. I didn't expect to see this level of connection. Mm. Mm. This like the level of connection, the culturally diverse artifacts that are there. Mm. I kind of assumed this area, especially England after the 
that was a complete rejection of everything Roman, and they kind of pushed it all past and left all the villains. I was almost expecting this area to be very isolated. Hmm. But obviously the Grave Goods show a complete contrast to that. And to be, just to be able to see that link, I think is such a brilliant demonstration of how wrong our attitudes are about that sometimes. Yeah. With having multinational Grave Goods, if they're very similar to the Nordic tradition, one of the common things that you would find in Nordic graves that I find really interesting is the amount of Islamic silver that there would be, because it shows the extent of the Vikings' trade routes. Did yeah. the has there been research about the origins of the goods in Sutton Hoo, so that we know where any of this came from? Because we talk about how they've got a lot of trade and it was an extensive trade community. Do we know where specifically some of their stuff came from? And if they have the same wide reaching as the Scandinavians. Yep. So there are links to the Byzantine Empire, Ooh. which is the um, which formed the Eastern Roman Empire following its fall, which must be around the same area, no? So what have we got from there? Um, I think that was a lot of the metalwork. Um, oh. Sorry. Yeah. So. so silver the silver work in there was from the byzantine empire which makes sense when you're talking about the arab ones mm. then you had other metal work coming from europe so there's obviously another connection there mm. um for the record byzantine empire lower italy bulgaria greece and then by the looks of it turkey so yeah it's a very similar area um so yeah obviously you've got I don't, I, I, just a theory that I've suddenly thought of now we're talking about it. I don't know if that's gained through the connections they already have, well, he had with Scandinavia. Mm. If he gained it through that way or if he's brought, or if there's a trade route going through there anyway. Mm. That is um, interesting to think about whether it has come directly from these target countries or if it's coming up Scandinavia and then down through the North Sea. Yeah, I don't know because it, re it really depends. I'm not sure the age um, of everything compared to kind of when he was in Scandinavia and when he was in Britain. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's just, I always find it a little surprising every time when I look at it and just see how interconnected these societies mm. were, despite our kind of conceptions of the period. Yeah, it is always considered that ancient civilizations were all very, very separate from each other and isolated. That's one of the things that people like to pat around with um, conspiracy theories when they go, these civilizations had no contact with each other and yet they had similar ideas. And it's like they, they had a lot of contact. Actually, they were all trading with everyone else. Read a book, please. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but just an example of that. Um, you know the Terracotta army in China? Mm. Yeah. Now, if I remember rightly, I don't remember where I read this, but... Um, the only people making statues like that at the time were the ancient Greeks. Really? I think so, yeah. However, oh. they think, obviously they're all individual, but they, and it's, they, I think they've only discovered 20, 10, 20% of it, what mm. they reckon it is. But they thought China was a completely isolated civilization mm. with, with Europe anyway. Mm. So whether that's 
whether that connection is direct or whether there's another explanation for it, I haven't looked too much into it. But like I think you say, it really does just demonstrate how connected all these places were. Mm. Again, we've discussed in the past about what is a modern concept versus what is an ancient concept. Yeah. Uh, there are things that are considered modern um, by everyone, such as like egalitarian societies. And then there are other things that you almost don't think about, like trade and international relations, where you go, yeah, surely that is a modern 20th century concept but it really really isn't and even no, back so. in the times of sort of semi-prehistory everyone was getting on their boats and traveling around talking to other people getting people's beads and silver but even there's think i think there's an example I, I think it was the vikings they went to america before columbus did yeah yeah and then they just thought you know what i'm gonna leave well enough alone and didn't decide to completely screw everything over Another win for the Vikings, really. Well, it's one of the places they didn't invade. Mm. Because there's obviously so war-focused and there's nothing else about civilization at all. (laughs) Okay, so after that, I think we're just going to pop for a quick break. So to focus now on the bit that I thought was the only thing that existed at Sun Hu, the big ship. Now, when the archaeologist Basil Brown first discovered this, this was perfectly preserved. I, I, no, no timber survived, but you had little stains in the sand. Wow. And most of the iron rivets were still in place. They'd rusted, but they were still in the same places they should Amazing. be. Amazing. Now, as I said before, the ship was 27 metres long, about four and a half metres wide, would have used about 40 oarsmen, and was fairly obviously, due to the repairs and the craftsmanship required, used at sea. This was a functional boat, as well as having its ultimate decorative purpose. Now, the central chamber, might, well, like the rest of it, timber framed, had a pitch reef as well. Um, and most likely, when it was being buried, lifted from the ship they would have prepared a trench dug it all out and it was only the stem and the stern i think they're called i don't know ships i'm sorry they, they were the only bits above the land surface yeah. that mound was constructed above it but not to bury the ship almost just to also poking out the ground yeah so the ship's in the ground mm. but the mound itself is built not to cover the ship but as almost a status symbol mm which I think is quite indicative of what they were trying to achieve Mm. with the burial, not necessarily just putting this king away, but putting this king away in such a way that demonstrated his power continued long after his death. Especially if you've got part of a visible ship as the burial for your king, visible from the trade route where everyone's taking their ships, That that is a statement and a half. Yeah, it's very similar to, like we said before, what the Vikings did. That mm-hmm. That's a symbol visible from that waterway. Mm. And when people were going past, it reminds them of the influence that people have had here, especially him, his memories preserved through that mound. I personally, this is completely off topic, I'm very impressed by the size of this ship. Because I... Meters. Yeah. I have a, have a fun fact for you that you're going to hate, what? because everyone I tell this fun fact to hates it. I learnt it in year 10 and ever since then i've been cursing other people with this information 
the longest tapeworm ever removed from a human oh, no, here we go. was 24 metres long. That is 78 <laughs> feet. Now, that is massive. That is longer than the biggest giant squid. And I love to compare this 24 metres, which is an absolutely massive size, to every size that I get <laughs> affronted with. And this ship is bigger than the longest tapeworm, which doesn't sound like an achievement, but it really is, considering the amount of times I've heard a measurement and gone shorter than the longest tapeworm. This, longer. Very impressive. Can I ask? Yeah? How long's the um, digestive system of the human? About, because that's about, se- the, the tapeworm was about 78 feet. The digestive system is about 15 feet. He was curled I, up. He was curled up. I just up. Googled it and it's about five metres. Yeah. That's mental. I learnt this at a Cambridge Gateways thing in like the... Oh, was it year 10? I think it was year 11, actually. It was the winter of year 11. He's gone up and down five times. Yeah. Oh, that's grim. Yeah. Just, just, just think how big the ones that weren't caught were. <laughs> it hasn't been removed yet. It's still in there. Oh, this one, the one that hasn't been removed yet, is actually 27 metres long. <laughs> so can I, how many years, so it's a completely off topic, but how many years was this in, like, was this person had this tapeworm? I don't know. I wasn't given that much information. I was just, I went to this, like, taster lecture on, like, biology and stuff. And it was about parasites and things. And then she just whipped out this fact about this 24 metre long tapeworm. Uh, it was removed somewhere. Right, question. Yes. How many feet did you say? 78, I believe. I've just stuck this into Google only because I wanted to find some more about some more about it. The longest tapeworm ever removed from a human was 82 feet long. That's, that's bigger. No. That's bigger. When did that come out? It might have been since my last one. Damn it. Oh, to be fair, 82 feet is still 24 metres, but it's like 24.99, so it's like 25. It might right, be the okay. same one, just like different me- measurements. 2018. Oh, wow, that, yeah. Fits the time scale. That's awful. The man had complained of abdominal pain for several months and had anemia. The tapeworm is a parasite that lives in the small intestine. Wait, it's only in the small intestine? How long is the small intestine? 22 feet, 7 metres. Oh my god. It's all curled up in there. But you know what's bigger than that tapeworm? The ship at the Sutton Who. Okay, okay, good. I was waiting for something else. (laughs) Oh, that's awful. It's both my favourite and my least favourite fun fact. I mean, it's 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 weird. I've that sort of stuff. I've got a grim fascination with. Mm. I don't know what it is. I mean, the man, the man you can thank for teaching me that fun fact is honestly the man we can thank for this podcast existing because he told me to go to that seminar lecture thing and he also told me to go to this summer school that we met and became friends on. The, the man who told me this, he was a teacher at my school and he wrote right, okay, extracurricular activity for me over the lockdown of winter 2021. And I said, sure, why not? And then I found out this horrible fact about tapeworms and I've never slept a night again. (laughs) (laughs) I check all my food for stringy substances and I think, oh God. Anyway. (laughs) We escaped to the sun who we haven't recorded in months and now we've just like forgotten how to. (laughs) 
Nah, I mean, Go into the habit of academic discussion. Got out of the habit, and now, now we're. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. We can just do this in our actual interviews as well. But what do you know about this tapeworm? <laughs> it was your Cambridge Gateway thing that told me about this tapeworm, so you guys should be into it. Oh, it's like um. Oh, what was it? I was debating doing an episode on this. Actually, there was. Cambridge excavated a load of monasteries and they found all the monks had worms. Yeah, you told me about that one. See, again, if you do an episode on that, I will bring this tapeworm up again. Well, we just do an episode on archaeological tapeworms. That would be quite interesting, like evidence of parasites in the past. We're going to have two recurring characters in this podcast. Our two recurring characters are going to be Hjalmar and tapeworms. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got to find a way to just get them in every... Yalmar has excavated any parasites. I'm going to be on Yalmar. <laughs> he probably had them, to be fair. <laughs> Don't disrespect Yalmar like <laughs> Anyway. What meticulous to... man would never. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> right. I have breathed. So, it was 27 minutes. Sending into chaos. Longer than the longest tapeworm. <laughs> And it was, it was not completely buried in the mound, which is a very, very interesting fact and symbol of its status. Was this ship a purely decorative creation designed for this burial? Or do we have any details about what it might have done if it had a working life? Um, like, like I said, there's, there's evidence of repairs. So it's obviously been used at sea. Mm. Given the size of the ore ship, I wouldn't assume it's a battleship. Mm. Um, I, I'm tempted to go down the whole trade route thing again, uh, or because I wouldn't assume it's a leisure boat. It might be because he's minted. That's um, <laughs> what one way of putting it. Um, I I really don't know. I mean, if you're a king and you've got an absolutely massive boat, and you're a trading colony, um, and you have connections to Scandinavia, it could well be some kind of diplomatic ship. You go, this is our really, really impressive boat that our king travels on. Look how impressive we are. Give us your goods, you know? It might well be. A sort of status symbol for travelling the oceans, and then when you die, a status symbol for travelling to the afterlife. Yeah, I mean, that, that that whole symbolism of the boat is very powerful. Um... I'll bring it back to Egypt only because it's something that's come to my head. When Tutankhamun was discovered, mm. he had several model ships. Mm. So obviously any society with a neighbouring ocean or a neighbouring river, which was most of them, because that's where people kind mm. of built from. The whole idea of travel on boats is a very potent one. Mm. So yeah, it definitely is, as well as... Well as whatever diplomatic or trade purpose it has it will also have that symbolic purpose mm. also because we we know that the other boat was two by five do we know the average size of this style of boat because now we're considering it massive was it massive in comparison to other vessels that the anglo-saxons had or even the viking longboats? what kind of size were they no now you know when you google average size for an anglo-saxon boat You'd think it would bring up the average size of an Anglo-Saxon boat. No, it's just bringing up the length of the Sutton Hoo. <laughs> yeah, not average. Kind of... Come on. Well, it might be, might no. be the average. Maybe it is. I've just seen one for 23. Ooh. 
Um, tip right. Is this Viking? Twenty-three shorter than the longest tapeworm. Oh, here we go. Um, right. This is a Viking one, not mm. an Anglo-Saxon one. However, seventeen meters. I've got here typical snatcher. I might be saying that wrong. S S N E double K J. But if we have very um, strong links to the Vikings, we're probably going to have quite similar boats yeah. that would sort of throw out there. Also, also, Viking boats had oar lengths of between 5.3 and 5.85 metres. The oars by themselves, not in the boat, the oars. That does explain why a lot of them were so henched, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does, Jesus. <laughs> I can't find it. This is really annoying me. Well, we can we can take the Viking one as sort of a. We have to. We're yeah. trading with the Vikings. We're going to want to be impressing the Vikings, and if we're ten meters bigger true, than the Viking true. ships, ho ho ho, impressive. Now, it might seem like a stupid question. I realize I haven't asked this yet. Were the Vikings in Sweden? I believe so. I believe the Vikings were overly Scandinavian. Are you suggesting that the the boat burials in Sweden? But not Viking. Um, I'm just wondering if it was another thing that wasn't directly linked. Um, um, the, Viking, obviously... the Viking Age um, was basically all of the Scandinavian countries, in largely in the east of Sweden. Um, but they did, which is where they, which is where this is found. Yeah, they did very much have bases in Sweden. It's basically all of Scandinavia, Norway. Some of Germany actually, in a really interesting turn of events. A lot of the, because I found this out from research for last episode about where the chamber graves are and they're in yeah. they're in Norway and they're in some parts of Germany. Yes, the Vikings were in Sweden and they were in it they were during roughly the same period. Mm. So yeah they might well be. Although this might be a little bit before. Oh that's interesting. What is that? The Viking Age about eight hundred to ten fifty. Mm. When was the Sutton Hoo burial stuff? Six twenty, they reckon. Six twenty, six thirty. Mm. So not necessarily the Vikings, but an ancestor <laughs> to the Vikings. Yeah, the um previous before because when it starts being the like the Viking Age, that's when the communities started going out and um invading which is one of the reasons why you talk about the vikings as this warlike community because the viking yeah. age is sort of de defined by their policies of expansion yeah so this is this is basically the same um races and communities just in the generations before they start going out and doing more violent stuff so this is in the sort of beginning of their trade routes and when they're yeah. more peaceful and before because the viking the viking age is defined as the era where they started going global you know, like us, they started going global um, and invading places and settling in places other than the north of the very, very north of Europe. So yeah. this is, these are the same communities just um, in their earlier stages before they start settling elsewhere. Because this is this is interesting because this is just me waffling. But if they are having these trade routes through Scandinavia to East Anglia before the age of Viking invasion, then that could be we found we found England. We quite like England. And that could then inform their later invasion. invasion. That's that's an interesting thought. That's a very interesting thought. But then 
Yeah, because they invaded, according to Google, the first invasion took place in 793 for the Vikings, apparently. So we're already having trade. That's really interesting that you're having trade with Scandinavia before the Viking invasion. That is very, very cool. So, can I ask, how much do we know about the kind of settlements before the Vikings, then? Well, we have some knowledge of the Anglo-Saxons, and, of course, there's the um, very common image of the monk, who was the person who was writing down um, everything that was going on around the monasteries, which is an interesting comparison that we've already talked about, of the comparison between the influence of Christianity and the Vikings, where it's often considered as polar opposites, largely because of that concept that they came in and they killed a bunch of monks, which is um, the competition with Christianity. It is considered a dark age before Viking invasion. So when I, we don't know that much, but there is some written history. And I personally don't know that much. Like you say, though, it's just interesting to see that this is helping to shape that that Viking community. I didn't realise the extent of the links we had. I honestly just started researching this as this is an Anglo-Saxon mm. burial. I didn't realise the extent of the links we had mm. here. But but yeah, to see that we're not trading with the Vikings, I think we kind of both expected. Mm. I, I guess it kind of brings us back to last episode where we the focus wasn't on viking invasions but on the more peaceful mm. tales i'm wondering how similar these sort of settlements are to that mm. because to be fair even post viking invasion you know there is a there is a lot of talk about all oh, massacring of the monks which to be fair happened a bit and there was a, there was some pillaging but after that there was there was a period of peace and um cohabitation where they had the dane law and the other section that I cannot remember what it was called, but the bit that was still run by the Anglo-Saxons, there was sharing of territories. Um, yeah. I'm not sure which East Anglia belonged to, but that would be interesting to find out because even in what is the Viking era where they were going and pillaging and invading, it still is not fundamentally a violent society. It is a society of poetry and craftsmanship. That is yeah. clearly prevalent from very, very early. So are we are we then classifying the Viking era wrong? Well, that is a really interesting question. Um, because the Viking era isn't when these communities come to be. It's when they start expanding. And I assume that people who are more well-versed in Viking studies than I am, as I'm not... I know I, I talk like an expert. I'm not really. Um, so people people who are more I know the feeling. Yeah, people who are more um, well versed probably have different ways of defining it and different definitions of Viking and Viking communities. Um, there is, there is probably some argument of there could be better ways. Yeah, definitely. That's how I just. I just find it interesting that if we're defining it off when we when they started invading, mm. but the suggestion is that they're not a violent society, they don't revolve around those invasions. Should we be identifying different cultural issues that cement that period? Mm. Because there's a, there is a lot of talk that um, history is written by the winners, but there is also the concept that history is written by 
the people who survived and the cultures that continued. And in many ways, Anglo-Saxon-ness has really outlasted the Vikings because I have just looked up um, Viking definition because I was interested. And Viking is defined as Scandinavian seafaring pirates and traders who raided and settled in many parts of North Northwestern Europe in the 8th to 11th centuries. So even to be a Viking is to be defined by expansion, leaving Scandinavia and moving to elsewhere in Europe. So the pre-expansion communities in Sweden would probably not actually be defined as Vikings, or they could be because it can be listed as a Scandinavian could be a Viking. So they would be like pre-Viking era Vikings. Very interesting. This might be something that I'm looking into later, but ooh, very fun. Right. I'm going to be another one that's just done a quick Google. Yes. Um, the, the Sami people mm. are believed to be the people that came before the pre-Vikings, mm. believed to be hunter-gatherers in northern parts of Europe for around 5,000 mm. years. If, if we're saying that these are only hunter-gatherer people, why do we have such advanced or ironwork, um, metal, other metalwork, such advanced trade connections if we're putting these people down to hunter-gatherers, are we not? When did this hunter-gatherer era end? Because it's very possible that they had quite a That's quick... That's a very good question. Um, as we did, and as sort of humanity in general did, had a very interesting Iron Age. And then that may well have then informed their ability to form trade and become the very sophisticated culture that they then became as they began to work metal and became craftsmen rather than hunters. And Agriculture, yeah, because when you think about it, you never really think about Viking agriculture that much, partly because of the sort of militaristic propaganda, but also partly because... Well, there was there was stuff about like sheep and having it, but it was it was far less of a massive thing than it was for some other cultures at the time, because it was you were, it was largely craft and hunting. Sorry, to sorry, quick point. agriculture. Go on. I've just done some more googling. I lo I love this live research. Um, I'm really sorry that you did Anglo-Saxon Sutton Who, and I've got us talking about the Vikings again. <laughs> oh no no no! It's fine because th this is really interesting. Um, the Sami people still are still alive in Sweden. Wow. They believe there's about twenty thousand of them left. Oh, wow. that is very cool. And they trace back about ten thousand BC. Very very cool. Um, the first written record of their existence is the ninth, ninth century wow. uh, in Norway. So that ninth century, which ties in with mm. the Vikings. So when you have read about Hjalmar's discoveries of the boat burials in Sweden, who are they credited to? Are they credited to Vikings? Or are they credited to historical people? Hang on. I don't, I don't actually know, because if it is, if it is the Sami people, then that kind of solidifies that link. Because we're going to assume it wasn't... Uh, now we're going to assume it wasn't the Vikings. It sort of was Vikings, but, like, not in their Viking era. 
difficult to explain, but you know what I mean, sort of. It was just sort of the Scandinavian peoples a little bit pre-expansion. Um, oh, I've got a name of the growth. Hang on, I've got a name of the growth. I like the way one of you your later notes is LIVE VIKINGS in all caps, but we're... Uh... Um... Who did it belong to? Um, so that Valsgarda was another big burial site. Um, there's about sixty cremations. Mm. There's quite a few um, boat burials. Um, the Swedish Vendelage, part of the Iron Age. Mm. Vendelage. We're getting somewhere. So they had an Iron Age period occurring during that mm. era. Uh, Vendel period appears to be the migration periods between the migration period and the Viking Age. Oh. Um, so that's where you, you've got your hunter gatherers. They've entered. You settle down. Yeah. So they trading. Then you start to expand. Yeah, so this is the period of them building up to the expansion during the Vikings. Very cool. Um, and yeah, by by the looks of it, this is them founding the tradition of boat burials. Well, I'm gonna have to do some more research into that. That is that is very very cool. Anyway, should we return to Rydveld? <laughs> yeah, back to back to the guy that we're talking about, um, the Anglo-Saxon. Um, just a touch on why they think it's a kingly burial. Um, mm. It's widely accepted to be him, mm. um, which is most likely due to the high quality imported goods mm. and the authority that the gold present intended to convey. Now, as a large amount of it in there obviously alongside the other metal work um but just with the amount of community effort that would have been required close proximity to surrounding like um trading towns it's very unlikely to be somebody insignificant simply because of the amount of effort you aren't just going to put all that high quality goods into some average joe's tomb Especially when it is so different from everyone else, and it's oh yeah, no, not not at all, not at all. It is certainly going to be someone very significant, and if there is a um, high-ranking, widespread king from that time, it's it makes sense to be him. Yeah. With the context of like the playing pieces and that kind of thing. Yeah. Now a little fun fact that I just found in my notes: there's a left-handed fighter. <gasps> How do we know it? Um, because the tradition was to have your sword placed on your left hand side mm, so you can is draw it easily as a sword owner i'm aware of this that's mildly terrifying to think um, <laughs> his is placed on his right wow and yeah. you have the wear marks of somebody that would carry it left-handed as well wow he's got his his wear mark apparently so that is amazing um there's a welded pattern on it have you ever seen 
Um, have you ever seen pictures of the of that sword, like fully fully reconstructed? I I don't think so. I've mainly just seen the helmet. No, it's no, it's beautiful. It's really intricate. For the record, the most um academic site ever. Go to Wikipedia. that has got some really it's got it's got some really good detail on the sword. Oh, the... you know you know what I've I've looked it up. You know what I've got a um one of the first pictures is from. What gone? It's from the night shop. You can buy a replica of it no from way. that shopping man. Good no. Shout a shout out to the night shop in Conway, Wales. Oh, that's unreal. You can get a Sutton Hoo sword because they also sell. One of the reasons that I've been looking at the helmet so much is because they they sell some armor, and one of the things they have is a replica of the Sutton Hoo helmet. And I remember oh, I I'd been looking at it like a month or two ago. For your 18th, are you going to get the Sutton Hoo sword? Oh, I might have to now. No. Yeah. Even if I will be revising on the day because got a lot of exam periods. Oh, awful. I know. Anyway, to distract ourselves, we will return to the Sunday. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd like to see how many times I've said 27 metres in Sunday this episode. Um, just on the other stuff that they found, um, this was metal work that was the highest quality in Europe. Um, so you had helmets, swords, there's a shield, there's a leer, silver plates. Um, the helmet itself is sorry to interrupt. Would you pronounce that a leer? Is it what? What is it? A liar? I don't know. I, I consider it to be a liar, and every piece of media that I've heard it aloud calls it a liar, right? Okay, fine, it's probably a liar then. Yeah, because there's that famous joke, you know, what do you play? The the liar. Oh, a liar and a player too, you know? Uh, yeah, sorry, I just sort of needed to bring no, that no, up. No, That's no, good. no, it's fine, because I can't pronounce stuff at the best of times. Um, obviously, you've got the helmet, and that's going to be the main thing. Mm. Um, that's, like, like you said at the start of the episode, that is that famous image, the face mm. mask, the neck guard. They're really deep cheek pieces on it. However, was actually this is the reason you see reconstructions of it all the time? I said earlier, I think the roof collapsed. Mm. This was the when thing that... it completely obliterated. No, when did the roof collapse? They think it was a couple hundred years afterwards, but it makes sense for when Basil Brown found it. And there's, I don't know if it's just how the dig depicted it, but this is the main image I've got in my head. There's a little dip in the top of the mound it almost goes up and it should sit flat and it doesn't it dips in in the middle which is why they think which is one of the reasons why he started digging there because at that the initial impression along from some other signs is that place had been looted mm. and that was another thing that we kind of put them off digging there initially until they dug around the other sites they didn't really find too much so they went back to that main one the interesting thing is, I keep referencing the dig, but it's just another thought that's come to me. They didn't think it was a society that had developed coinage yet. I know, obviously, the Romans did, but I think, mm. if I remember rightly, the idea when they found it was that they kind of returned to one that didn't have them. Mm. However, those coins almost rewrote ideas about that period and about the economy during the period they provide the main date for the burial as well amazing yeah it's good but look, look 
this is this is the sort of stuff that I find brilliant. You just see how impactful these artifacts are. Mm. Oh, there you go. Bone get right. It's just so you can get excited. Bone gaming pieces. Yes. Do we have any concept of what kind of game this was? No way. What is it? It's Nefertafel. Yes. Wow. Well, that's another link to the um, Scandinavian that's mental. community. Because that is, well, that is considered a Viking game. But of course, if it's the pre-Viking, just not quite expansionist in your Iron Age era. We have three recurring characters. <laughs> Yalmar, the tapeworm, never dapple. Oh my word. <laughs> Sorry, my, my mind's been blown today. This has been one of the most inter- interesting episodes we've done. Yeah, it's it's trade. Everything, everything that's interesting about archaeology... One of the most interesting things is trade because it's the interaction of the ancient world and it's the way that everything is interconnected and the diff- the sharing of different cultural traditions is one of the best things because cultural traditions are what make us human and what make us collectively human is the sharing of those traditions and it has been happening throughout history and throughout prehistory and it will continue to happen for the rest of time and i think it's great that's yeah no, I, I, I completely agree, and it's one that it affects all the societies you ever really look at, um, mm. small, even on a smaller scale than the thousands of kilometres we're seeing here. Like, mm-hmm. It really does, that whole past trade really does help to just shape the society that's built then, built now. You see this progression. It's not always linear, but there's always something. Um, so do you know this high quality metalwork speaking of trade was this do we have any evidence that this was local craftsmanship or was this scandinavian they think it was mediterranean which is another trade link and i'm not too sure where it comes from apart from potentially leftover roman links Mm. um but yeah they they reckon a lot of it was from scandinavia but the armor and stuff they reckon that was mediterranean amazing and is that the is that the raw materials or is that actually it has been made and i I think it was actually made in um in the mediterranean so whether that whether that's visits like you said diplomatic or trade we're not too sure just on a point of it um obviously the weapons and the armor suggest a military influence um but the evidence suggests that obviously we're kind of talking about how intricate they were mm-hmm. my initial assumption would be that they'd be de- they'd be decorative pieces ceremonial yeah. there's evidence suggests they were practical <gasps> which i find well, a bit crazy to to think considering how decorated and ornate they were well, yeah, if his if his sword has that much wear mark, he's going to have been using it. What what evidence is there that it was used? Obviously, you've got the the um, he's got his hand wear marks on the hilt of the sword. I imagine, obviously, it would have rusted the blade itself. But you had evidence there. You had a lot of other weapons in there as well. So whether those are just stuff that's been put in not it might well have been his but it wasn't necessarily 
all used ceremonially, if you get what I mean. There might be mm. some there'll be some stuff that he did actually fight with. Mm. I'm not too sure about the specifics of what those selected out. I, the sword's just the one that springs to mind, but probably yeah. the shield, probably the spears. With the procurement of it, or are we talking about whether that would be um, trade or diplomatic? My conclusion, thinking about applying the way that modern cultures work, I, I would assume that while forging trade routes and um, or while meeting diplomatically, you know how leaders gift each other things? Yeah. If you have a very fine craftsman and you're meeting a very powerful king, if you can make him the most decorative helmet possibly in, in Europe and or the world and a very, very decorative sword to give that to him, that will improve your standing internationally. Oh, yeah, completely. So I, my assumption or conclusion would be that these are sort of diplomatic gifts if they are coming from countries that you have trade routes with and are incredibly decorative and valuable pieces. These are things that are being given to you as a powerful and influential man to try and gain favour and yeah, alliance. Yeah, I was about to say it does correlate given his influence. Mm especially in Eastern England, which I know I know he only ruled East Anglia. Mm. But there's suggestions of him having influences both north and south of those regions, stretching the whole way up to one of the I had to look it up. I don't remember the name of the river, but it's right it's the river that runs near Newcastle. Oh wow. To give you a sense of scale, obviously East Anglia is around by Norwich and Norfolk, but yeah, it's just for a potentially foreign king with foreign links to have that sense of control and influence over England was unpre unprecedented for the period. So just to jump to um, probably our final topic that we need to discuss, mm. unless we want to go down another rabbit hole about Vikings. <laughs> um, the misappropriation, well, the initial misappropriation, or not actually, depending on how you look at it, of mm. Basil Brown. Now, this was the man, was a, he was a self-taught archaeologist. Mm. And he first started excavations in uh, 1938, continued when he was asked back in 1839 by the widowed Edith, Pe Edith Petty, whose husband had bought the mansion in 1926. Mm. Um, now... Like I, like I said earlier, she wanted Mound 1 to be excavated. However, mm. oh, they felt it had already been robbed. So they went for the other two. So they went for two. They went for Mound 2, which obviously was that smaller ship. Mm. And then Mounds 3 and 4 as well. I don't remember what they found, but they're obviously the smaller ones. Mm. Um, however, it's only after this, after this that. Uh, these 1938 excavations was when Ipswich, Ipswich Museum, who were the people that suggested Brown services in the first place, they then started to become involved. So once he started his excavations and found the scale of this ship in in 39, um, that then the museum curator at Ipswich Museum after being asked by a, a guy called Charles Charles Phillips at Cambridge, 
he had mm. he caught wind of this and wanted to look into it more and it was that curator that brought him down and looked at the excavations and then following that very quickly took control of it uh-huh. um now brown was told to cease excavations he still continued and found the found the burial chamber itself this is only referenced once so i can't necessarily verify this but from what i've read mm. brown was restricted from excavating the burial chamber that he found oh, no. and following vested interests between phillips and ipswich museum mm. ipswich were also excluded <laughs> from this discovery <laughs> So this guy's basically come along, taken control of it, and kicked everybody else off of it. Oh, now, just a little point on Brown before I kind of return to the artifacts. He was, as much as we say he wasn't credited for this, he was held in high regard. He received a pension from a scholar that was studying this. Nice. I think his name's Rupert Bruce Smithford which is kind of an indication of as much as we do say that he wasn't credited for this. There's obviously people that knew mm. of him at the time. Um, however, officially, I don't think his contributions were recognised until past 2000. Oh, that's a shame. So what happened uh, once Phillips had taken control of the stuff? What happened to the stuff? Because it ends up at the British Museum, but how does it get there? Is that all Philip? Um, no, he, he takes it off to London mm. and it's only once either Petty then comes back and goes, it's either Petty or Pretty, I realise. I don't remember the surname. I am sorry. Um, well, that's going to annoy me now. I think you've written it Petty, so I, I would just... I've written it Petty. I'm... No, it, it, it is Pretty. I am pretty. so sorry, Edith. Misinformation um, in our archaeology podcast. I know. I know. I'm so sorry. Um, so she then claimed ownership of, of it, eventually did get ownership because they were found on her land. Now, after coming out of storage from World War II. Basically, so the widow um, claims ownership. Ah. Yeah. And she bequeathed them to the nation. Mm. So the British Museum then took hold of them. That's now a permanent exhibition in room 41. Mm. Um, however, the original finds from mounds 2, 3, and 4, which includes the smaller ship, are actually at Ipswich Museum. Oh. And you've got little replicas of the helmet and the sword there as well. But Phillips gets nothing. No, although, just to touch back to Brown again... Mm. There's an argument to say that he was actually credited because he's mentioned in Philip in Phillips, Phillips' 1940 article, oh. but it it wasn't necessarily obvious to the extent that I think some people mm. wanted. So it's less like, oh, this is Brown who discovered this. It's more like this is the local man who was there while I discovered it. Local man witnesses Cambridge academic dig up King. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as much as I think he he is somewhat overlooked in the historical record, it took until 1985 for him, for his name to be credited for it. However, there's also an argument to say that that's when the permanent exhibition was established. So it wasn't necessarily because 
it wasn't because they didn't want to credit him, but it's because they didn't have the space to pre- to present everything how they wanted. There's two, there's two sides to that argument. Um, it really depends how you look at it. I hope Slush assumed that he was alive at the point where he was credited. Um, I'm going to really depress you. I don't think he was. No. No, he, he died in 1977. So he died uncredited? Or not particularly? Somewhat credited. Upsetting. But not, yeah, not, not in the British Museum. Oh, poor guy. Why why are all archaeologists' stories tragic? There was a there was a very similar story that I read about in Worthing Museum about a local archaeologist who'd been excavating on the downs and he found um some Stone Age mines um that had really yeah. significant cave paintings. Um that were some of the first and one of the paintings of an ox, it had clearly a harness, so it's one of the first instances of domesticated animals in agriculture and it's incredibly significant and the local archaeological society because he was basically just some local amateur archaeologist banned him from excavation and basically took all the credit for his work in a very similar way but in many ways even worse um so he then proceeded to leave the society band together his group of friends managed to sort of kick the archaeological society out continued to excavate his mind it was an excellent and lovely story um and then at the age of like sixty, he was gunned down in a bank robbery. Sorry. Yeah, I I got absolute whiplash reading the story because there's this really lovely story about how he bands together his his group of misfits and they dig out the mines and they find these antler tools and everything's great. And then in nineteen like sixty one, he gets gunned down in a bank robbery and his murderer is one of the last people to be hanged in Britain. And it's like, where did this come from? It's just these these uncredited archaeologists have these absolutely tragic ends and it's making me quite worried for our futures <laughs> oh it doesn't doesn't bode well does it you make any big discovery something bad is coming your way that's the curse it wasn't Tutankhamun at all it's just in general being an archaeologist means you have a terrible death <laughs> do you know what you know what i found quite funny i don't remember if it, i don't remember if it was this or something else but um it might be something else, but even still, it works here. I, I think I was reading about the whole curse thing. Mm. Um, and they said, oh, it, I think the article is a bit satirical, mm. but they're basically saying as much as there was a curse, everybody from the period is now dead. I said that to you. I, I told you that. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> I the person who messaged on the archaeology group chat on the 100th anniversary i messaged you that right okay was you sorry <laughs> it was me i said that's awful they're all dead today oh, i'm so sorry and that's awful <laughs> i like i like that my humor is that of a satirical article um oh jesus christ <laughs> that's bad <laughs> Oh, I cannot believe you trying to recycle my own I, I could have sworn it was something else. Actually, no, do you know what it was? Do, do you know what it was? You can add this back in if you want. I was reading about Jack the Ripper because I was reading with my sister. And I'm going to sound mental, but it's only because you made the same joke about this that I'm now associating it. It was this. It was the same article in Jack the Ripper that went, regardless of who the suspect was, everybody's dead. No, here, here it is, in this Jack the Ripper article. 
Um, as everyone alive at the time is now dead, modern authors are free to accuse anyone they can. <laughs> I do like that. That is true, to be fair. You can't get sued like the uh, the makers of the Richard the Third film. Oh, you. You, 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 you can keep that, you can cut it wherever you want, but that was funny. Oh, you were in a satirical article. No, you didn't. I, oh, shut I texted up. you a joke. Oh, man, I'm tired. <laughs> Gone is the professionalism from this podcast, Jesus. Yeah, we took, we took a, like, two-month break, and, and now this... Two-month break, we come back, and it's a mess. It's all tapeworms. Oh well, it's an enjoyable mess. That's all that matters. The people, our listeners, um, who enjoy the academic content are going to hate it. But you know, you can. They can pick out the interesting bits. They don't have to listen to all this. So, do we have any other conclusions about Brown or the Sutton Who in general to tie this all up? Just to finish, I think. It's probably something we've mentioned before, if not something I probably will mention in the future if I end up um, in a future research. But it, this is like, obviously we've discussed to the extent to which he was and wasn't credited, but it's still an issue of that underrepresentation of the lower classes. Mm. And that extends to the excavators, not only the groups we're actually talking about. Mm. Um, there's a really good comparison. I was doing, I think it was a Cambridge Egyptology workshop, mm. and the lady that was giving it was talking about the photography occurring during the Tutankhamun's discovery, mm. which, by the way, had it had its hundred year anniversary in the fourth of November. So, as we as we've been yeah, talking we about, know. It, that was quite cool. <laughs> some yeah, some people had some very funny um, comments to make about it. Right. Okay, here we go. I'm just, I'm just rubbing it in. Anyway, um, on on that point, all the native workers mm. were placed in positions of minority or less influence mm. than Carter. You see all of them. Carter's examining, but the workers holding the torch, that sort of thing. It kind of damaged that. In probably in that case, is a more colonial issue, mm. but. Obviously, you've still got this thing of the upper classes taking, or the more deemed powerful people mm. taking that influence, taking that. Oh, do I want to say credit from people that potentially had a greater influence on it? Obviously, Carter was leading excavations, yes, but was the water boy that found the, the first steps ever really credited that much? Not necessarily. Mm. And is anyone crying out for that water boy to be credited in the way that people cry out for a white man like Brown to be credited? That's, that, that's a good question, actually. I've never looked... It's weird, because I've never looked into how much um, demand there was for it, because I've... Obviously, you've got that story. It's, it's probably something I need to look into a little bit more. I have to get back to you on that. Um, but even, even still, if we're taking the suggestion that Brown was credited, mm. was he credited the, to the extent that he should be? Mm. Or did it take a long period for that to occur? Mm. I think that is that is a really interesting link between the topic of actually the content of the burial in Sutton Hoo of being a one-of-a-kind, not a representation of everyone, but a representation of a very powerful figure 
to yeah. being an underrepresentation in the excavation of the lower classes and it just being the powerful male figures being represented in the excavation of this unrepresentative tomb, you know? Yeah. I haven't expressed that thought as coherently as it sounded in my head, but I'm hoping no, 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 it's fine. No, it's fine. context it's fine. gets across. Like I said, it's just you, you, you're seeing the effects of, especially during this period anyway, the, the upper classes mm -hmm. and taking control of almost less qualified. Oh, obviously, he didn't have official training. doesn't make him any less worthy of the credit, however. Mm. Um, like, I, like I said earlier, I can't 100% I can't validate it, but from what I've found, he was excluded from that excavation of the burial chamber, like that sort of extent. It's the sort of stuff I find mental mm -hmm. when he's the person that's found it in the first place. So when you say that his lack of formal training doesn't make him any less um, valid, how important would you say that training was back in the day? I think the whole education thing is how, especially in academic fields, quote unquote, that's how it was regarded, wasn't it? Is how who who taught you where were you taught what have you been given obviously he's just literally been a self-taught archaeologist that got given a trial when he was younger and was made a career out of it as an excavator mm. the phillips that came along is an academic he's a scholar he's well educated um so obviously in the whole status thing he will have more authority to from from everybody's contemporary perspectives to, to the period. Would you argue that the education and training deserved to have a certain significance because of being able to learn the techniques? Or do you think that Brown was would have been just as good as anyone else? Not necessarily knowing the techniques. Obviously he still um still excavated carefully. You see that from kind of the trenches he made. He wasn't doing it haphazardly. Mm -hmm um obviously it's always going to help if you've got somebody that's been taught and has the experience of but he still had the experience of doing it for long enough he worked for ipswich museum for years and years doing roman excavations so it wasn't like he was new to it and i feel like no matter your level of training he still was the person that came along and found and found what was a completely it was, it was just something that completely rewrote the records. Mm. An absolutely revolutionary discovery. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you, Jane. Thank you, Luke. Nice to be back. And this is, I know, after a long, long time, this has been the Growth News Podcast. So have a good day, have a good evening. Au revoir, people. Auf Wiedersehen.